Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, we're going to get proportionally smarter on a Tuesday. Mona Mahanjan joins us from Allianz here as we consider not so much investment strategy, but the shock and awe of S&P 3000 and Dow 25,000. Mona, it has been an un-unloved bull market. How bull market is this, or is this a pause along the way, along the struggles of this pandemic? Yeah, you know, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. This is a great new format enjoying it immensely. But certainly that 3,000 level, uh, Tom, on the S&P is something that's not only psychological, but it happens to be close to the 200-day moving average. So it does have some technical significance as well. As well. Uh, we certainly think that if we can um, get through that, break through that, and sustain that for at least you know a few days, uh, that is meaningful in terms of perhaps uh, moving some opinions over to a more bullish stance. You know, to us, clearly this has been a bifurcated market. Um, the winner's and the S&P have been tech and healthcare, and the unloved cyclical sectors, you know, energy, financials, industrials, all still down over 25%, still very much in bear market territory. Um, really, we think if, if the market is a buyer of this reopening story, we should start to see a broadening of performance, and that should include some of those cyclical sectors. Certainly, we started to see that last week as well with industrials and energy at the top of, of the performance list. Um, we think that trend could continue and help carry us beyond the 3,000 move. Certainly this morning, we are seeing a buying of the reopening narrative. What kind of reopening are traders pricing in? Because there is the possibility that you reopen and nobody shows up because they don't have faith that they have the health controls in place that they won't get sick. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. And look, as we're watching this reopening, just like everyone else, we're watching the health data alongside of it. You know, one thing that's notable to us is that areas that had been the epicenter of this crisis, like New York and New Jersey, um, really the pressure on their hospital systems has alleviated quite a bit. And so I think when we think about why we flattened this curve in the first place is so that we wouldn't pressure the hospital systems. Uh, and some of the more southern states that we are seeing a little bit more uptick in some of the virus cases. Um, their hospital systems are generally still underutilized, the ICU beds, et cetera. So to us, you know, in order to really think about reshutting the economy or at least reshutting parts of the economy, you need to see pressure on that hospital system. So it's not uh, another point that we are watching. The other thing I'd say briefly is just that when we think about investing in the market broadly, you know, sadly, this crisis has really impacted uh, mom and pop businesses largely, you know, the restaurants, bars, gyms, et cetera. The S&P 500, however, is, you know, the 500 best capitalized, um, best balance sheets, uh, biggest companies in the U.S. economy. And so when you think about where to put your money, perhaps that's relatively safer and it could be a driver of, of what we're seeing now in the market as well. Got to lift the lid on that S&P 500. You did that briefly just moments ago, Mona, and I think that's the big topic for so many people. On the one side, we've got these crowding stretched valuations in growth. Then on the other side, we've got the potential for the value trap playing out over in cyclicals. How do you draw a distinction between the two at the moment and make sure you're in the right companies? Yeah, no, that's a great point. And we get that question all the time. Look, I think for a post-COVID world, you need to be involved with some of those technology, particularly on the software side that include areas like cybersecurity, cloud computing, 
the e-gaming space, you know, the whole complex around uh, the Zoom conferencing and, and remote learning even. Um, it's not going to be a one-year story. It's going to be a three, five, even ten-year story down the road. Uh, similarly, on the healthcare side, which may not be that long of a story, but still very important in the next probably two to five years. Uh, so I, I think we continue to see um, opportunities tactically there. So obviously, it's harder to chase at these levels, but when we do get uh, the pullbacks, we've had some sideways, sideways movements over the last few weeks. There have been opportunities to get involved again. Uh, on the other side, you know, we would be a little bit more selective when we think about some of the industrials, energy, financials. Um, there's certainly parts of the energy complex that are interesting to us, you know, um, refiners, for example, or even renewable energy. On the industrial side, you know, we're, we're taking a look at airlines here. I think their risk-reward is interesting as well when you think about limited downside, government might be stepping in to help bail out some of the companies. And eventually, we probably all will, you know, have to travel again. So selective um, parts across both sides of the spectrum, we think, make sense. Amanda, I've got to pick up on that. Airlines, I'm sure a lot of people sat up a little bit when you said that. I know you can't do single names, but surely that's a really, really difficult decision mix when you look at that sector at the moment. Some of these companies, I think it's fair to say, and I'm not being extreme saying this, some of these companies won't exist, will they? Mm, yeah, I, I certainly have to be careful across the spectrum here. Um, you know, one of the, the things about active management during a crisis, any crisis, but certainly this one is, there will be winners and losers, and the fundamental research will really matter. You need to look at balance sheets. You know, in a sector like airlines, you probably need to look at are they domestic, international. You need to look at what the routes are, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, obviously that was one example on how to play the recovery. There are others, you know, if you look across hotels, gaming, et cetera, et cetera, um, larger industrials as well. So I think there are certainly yeah, – ways to play it yep mona i'm not gonna buy it mona i'm not gonna buy it this is the (laughs) most barbelled market we've ever had with five or seven or ten stocks leading the way if i'm institutional investor here and my alpha is so far behind i'm not going to get paid my bonus what do i do buy more amazon buy more apple You know, it's interesting. I do think you make a good point about performance catch up here. You know, not many people got in at March 23rd and have, you know, ridden this 30% move higher. And so certainly you're going to see a lot of that. I think the implications of that are more that uh, now when you do get dips, um, are they more likely to be bought or are they more likely to be sold? And I think given the momentum behind the health, the economy, um, and, you know, just the reopening broadly, I think we're going to see a little bit more buying at this point. And so I think that's important to recognize as well. You know, so any opportunities you get, you know, if you can position yourself tactically during those times, it will be important. Now, that being said, you know, this is a long-term game here. So, um, you know, while we've had a great 30% move now, do we expect another 30%, you know, in the next six or eight-week period or even next quarter or two? Probably not. So you're not going to get, um, you know, the quote-unquote easy money once again. And so in that scenario, uh, you will get some sideways movements. You will get pullbacks. You will even get those 5 or 10% corrections along the way. And so those are your opportunities to get involved. Mona, what's the best hedge right now? Mm, interesting. Yeah, you know, I think we continue to like some of those defensive asset classes as hedges as well. So um, we're still buyers or believers in the gold story. Uh, the U.S. dollar, I think, is interesting still, you know, given the economy is uh, the U.S. economy is been the flight to safety asset class broadly. Um, treasuries are, are somewhat interesting as well, just given, you know, the support we're seeing from the Fed and the stimulus, et cetera. And so I think, 
you know, people will flock to, to treasuries as a hedge as well still. So some of those asset classes, certainly parts of the high, uh, high quality investment grade bond market still make sense to us as well. Mona, fantastic to catch up with you. Send my best to the team while you're Mona, Mona Mahajan, thank you. there of Allianz. The jobless claims, of course, folks, have been terrible. Yes, the vector's improving, but nevertheless, it is a labor economy in America that is absolutely extraordinary. Lisa, John, and I said, okay, we're going to do a simulcast, and you could get, you know, Beyonce in as, you know, on our first show or, you know, someone like that, maybe the guy that invented Bed Wars for Microsoft. And we said, wait, this is serious. The labor economy is imploding. So let us speak to the Secretary of Labor. He is, of course, from one of the great storied conservative families of America. Eugene Scalia joins us now. Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for starting your day uh, with us. I want you to explain how the administration and particularly how your cabinet office will react to 25 percent unemployment. What can you do from a regulation and institutional basis to protect the millions of Americans unemployed? Well, Tom, it's uh, good to join you. Thanks for having me. And um, we have been uh, acting on many different fronts to uh, help the actually tens of millions of Americans who've been uh, put out of work over the last couple of months as we've uh, idled our economy. Um, as you know, uh, the CARES Act included a uh, very substantial benefit for people out on uh, unemployment, uh, $600 a week on top of what uh, is paid by the states. We've been working very closely with the states uh, to, to get those payments out and uh, to, to help people during this challenging time. We've also been administering uh, the uh, paid leave provisions uh, that Congress enacted, and uh, and a program that uh, we don't administer here, but uh, I think it's been just invaluable to American workers right now, has been the Paycheck Protection Program. We estimate about 50 million American workers have been uh, kept on payroll through that program. That said, Tom, you know, we're, we're pivoting now, right? We're reopening. Uh, I was in Florida and uh, Georgia with the vice president uh, last week, and, and it was encouraging to see. We saw more of that over the weekend, too. Secretary Scalia, you've done a fantastic job over the last several months of providing a lot of aid to everyday Americans and companies as well. Down in Washington, not just the Republican Party, working with Democrats as well. I think we've all said that on this program many times. What we're trying to work out, though, is what happens after the reopening. The help that you offered during the shutdown, will any of that be extended at some point over the next several months? What's the current stance? Well, the, of course, um, the, the paid leave program uh, uh, remains in place. Uh, the uh, unemployment plus up that I mentioned, the $600 a week, is in place uh, through the end of July. And, um, it, but as we focus on the reopening, uh, the president is also looking at things to get the economy uh, uh, started again more broadly, uh, not simply aid, but uh, returning to that incredibly vibrant economy that we had through uh, th through early March, the president and I believe strongly that uh, part of what was key to that uh, economy was uh, lightening unnecessary regulatory burdens on business. So you had the president last week signing this new executive order, uh, urging agencies to look further at ways that we can uh, reduce, reduce unnecessary burdens on business so we can get businesses reopened. It was uh, by having that uh, vibrant business sector that we had that record low unemployment uh, through March. So that's 
something that uh, we consider uh, very important. Yes, we'll also look at uh, what further support uh, may be needed, but th- this situation's been so fluid uh, with the virus, uh, and uh, I, you know, I'd like to see how we progress into the month of June uh, before making decisions about uh, w- what particular further measures may be needed. Secretary, the market has largely priced in an extension of those additional unemployment benefits that you were talking about and that John raised. And I'm just wondering what metrics you're looking for that you will see in June that will make you decide that they're either needed as far as an extension goes or not? Well, I think the $600 plus up uh, was a very important uh, support being given to American workers during a time that uh, state and local governments were shutting down businesses and uh, and telling people uh, not to go to work. I, I don't see uh, continuing that program in its precise form going uh, forward from uh, July as we are re- reopening and, and now looking to get people uh, uh, from the sidelines mm-hmm. back into the workplace. I think, I think we'll be looking at different measures. Uh, Lisa, in terms of the things I'll be looking at, I, of greatest interest will be simply uh, how quickly uh, we put people back to work as we reopen. We know that millions of people are starting to return to work now, uh, and we'll be getting, uh, I think, more insights into that in the coming weeks. Mr. Secretary, the minimum wage is delivering my food to my house, and the elites are doing fine, I would say, as a generalization. I drove down Columbus Avenue this weekend in Manhattan, and it looked like one of those movies with Bruce Willis in it. It was so destitute, Armageddon-like. What is your administration going to do to get labor to get its fair share back in a spirited, open American economy? What's the strategy to stop the 50-year atomization of labor? Well... I think before the virus struck, one of the really remarkable things about President Trump's economy was how well people at the lower end of the pay scale were doing. You uh, saw uh, wages rising generally, but wages were rising more quickly for uh, people in the lowest 10 percent of the income scale, for people who uh, didn't have a high school degree. Uh, We had uh, record low unemployment for uh, some minority groups who historically had been disadvantaged in the marketplace. So You know, in all seriousness, when I look at what will be most important going forward, the single most important thing we can do for American workers, uh, particularly those at the lower end of the uh, pay scale, is return to the kind of vibrant economy that we had uh, just just two months ago. And that was an economy driven in substantial part by uh, a reasonable tax burden. And, and by reducing unnecessary regulatory burdens. So those will remain areas of focus, even as we also assess whether we are going to need to continue some uh, forms of additional support, for uh, example, for small businesses and for some workers. I think a lot of people are still going to need a lot of help. Mr. Secretary, I look forward to getting you back soon so we can talk about doing just that because there's some real urgency even as we reopen this economy. Secretary Scalia there of the United States, the Labour Secretary. So we spoke to the Secretary of Labor, Mr. Scalia. We thought we would speak to a gentleman who at the Fed more than anyone in the last 20 years has stead steadfastly on regulation and the operation of business. That is Mr. Terullo now at Harvard Law and, of course, a former governor of the Federal Reserve System. Wonderful to have you with us, uh, Professor, uh, today. I was talking to the Secretary of Labor about the atomization of the labor economy. 
Now we're going to atomize at an estimated 23 or 25% unemployment rate. What will be the societal reaction? Well, I, I don't know what the public reaction will be, but I think as a macroeconomic matter and, and certainly just as a human matter, taking measures now to ensure that there is income support for the millions and millions of people who are going to remain unemployed for quite some time to come ought to be the country's highest priority right now. And I'm, I'm a bit concerned that people are, are more than a bit concerned that so many people are taking what they see as a wait and see attitude. I mean, look, as, as you just said, unemployment is likely to be reported in the vicinity of 20%. Remember, 11 years ago during the great financial crisis, we were scrambling to try to do something a lot about 10% unemployment. So even if you postulate a halving of what the current rate probably is, we'd still be in a very serious position relative to the post-war economy. So I think any this notion of delaying and seeing whether we need to do more is, is really a, a, quite a bad mistake. Well, Dan, you touched on the other floor as well. It's not just about the timing, it's the composition of the next response. You're talking about a demand side effort. The administration increasingly, whenever I listen to them, whenever I get the chance to speak to them, are talking about a supply side response to help this economy reopen and get people back to work. What are the limitations of that, Dan? Well, I think, you know, I think Jonathan, we all recognize that this problem has been driven by epidemiology. It hasn't been driven by in the Fed stepping on the brakes too hard. It hasn't been driven by excessive credit, although that's probably exacerbated things. It's been driven by the epidemiology. And so getting people back to work is dependent upon the medical developments, not strictly speaking, economic developments. We can provide income support, but we cannot just through economic measures make it safe for people to go out. We can't make people comfortable about going out. And I think what that means is we've got an enormous amount of uncertainty that's probably going to be with us for some time. I mean, you folks on Bloomberg have been reporting on the enormous volatility in markets over the last couple of months. We've got some good news on, on um, uh, the medical front and everything goes up. You get some bad news, everything goes down. I think that just reflects the fact that we just don't know. And we ought to prepare for the possibility that things are going to be quite difficult for quite some time to Dan, and to this point, this, this sort of volatility that we saw in markets has basically gone away to a certain degree, in part due to what the Federal Reserve has done in terms of monetizing the debt of the United States. What's the risk for financial stability going forward, given how much debt the U.S. is incurring, given how much the Fed is interfering and pushing investors further into risk? Well, I think, you know, we, we do need to acknowledge that there are going to be some risks in whenever one takes the, the range of fiscal and monetary measures that have been taken. But I think we need to quickly qualify that observation by saying it is absolutely necessary to do whatever we can to stop what is a very serious situation from being a chronic, highly depressed situation. In other words, we're going to have to take some risks with respect to debt levels, with respect to financial stability, in order to stop this thing from getting worse and staying at a, at a low level. Um, having said that, uh, you know, I, I think, again, we do need to recognize that 
there were some vulnerabilities. There were some vulnerabilities in the commercial paper market. There were some vulnerabilities in the repo market. Uh, and, and to return to the theme that, that Jonathan was asking about a moment ago, you know, if we're in a situation in which the Fed will provide assistance to large asset managers because they have exchange-traded funds with relatively illiquid assets, why, why are we hesitating to provide assistance to middle and lower middle income people who are probably going to be out, many of whom are going to be out of work for a long time to come? So yes, there are there are risks, but I don't think we we need we should be paralyzed by the risks. We've got to act to try to keep a floor under income, a floor under the economy, and then as the medical developments permit, to start taking measures actively to build it up again. Right. <clears throat> Governor, I've got one final question. I remember the day you joined the Fed and the entire market community stood up and said, who is this guy? Why is he on the Fed? They said the same thing about Chairman Powell. How's the chairman doing? Well, look, Jay, Jay, Jay Powell has confronted a challenge that only Ben Bernanke really has confronted. They're, they're two very different kinds of challenges. Uh, uh, Ben's challenge was originating in financial markets and everything was imploding because of the vulnerabilities in markets and in banks. Uh, Chair Powell is facing a situation in which an, an external shock has created an unprecedented situation. And you know, he moved very quickly, I think, to push the Fed to um, get in place a set of emergency programs. I think he's made it clear that the Fed will do what they believe needs to be done. But I'm sure he'd be the first to say he's got a lot of work ahead of him. Dan, I don't want to cause any trouble between you and your friend Jay, but I do wonder, when he first took the job at the top of the Federal Reserve, and there was a side of him where he wanted to play almost the hard guy with financial markets, the guy that was going to run the Fed and not respond to where the SPX was, the S&P 500 was, on any given day. Is there a part of you, Dan, that just feels now that the Federal Reserve has completely capitulated, that the one mandate seems to be financial conditions, that is the exclusive channel which monetary policy flows through, and therefore that is the only thing that matters right now? I don't think, it, I don't think it's the only thing that matters. Um, look, I think over a longish period of time, there has been more focus on markets by all people at the Fed and perhaps some oversensitivity to markets. Having said that, though, to the degree that uh, what happens in markets then has an impact on the real economy, it would be unwise to ignore what is going on in markets. Um, and, and I think what you've seen actually in the last week or so is just a little bit of pushback by the Fed against that. I mean, both Vice Chair Florida and uh, President Williams of the New York Fed were out last week making pretty clear that despite the requests or demands of markets for some uh, more explicit forward guidance right now, that the Fed was going to hold back and think a while longer about what, it, what it's uh, going to say about monetary policy going forward. I don't know, Jonathan, that, that that's uh, directly in response to the concern that, that you articulated, uh, but it's at least consistent with trying to push back a little. 
Dan, how concerned are you about the Federal Reserve providing a backstop to companies that otherwise would be going bankrupt? In other words, they're offering a liquidity solution, but increasingly the problem is becoming a solvency one. And the Fed increasingly is being expected or priced in, at least by the market, as being willing to step in. Do you think that that's realistic? And do you think that they should? Well, two things. One, any any economic um, agency, part of the government, that is trying to respond in an emergency situation is faced with the problem that on the one hand, there's an imperative to get money out the door quickly. And on the other hand, they know they'll be second guessed in retrospect if any of that money has landed in a place where upon consideration, you wouldn't have wanted it to land. Uh, so I, I think that uh, you've got to expect a certain amount of undershooting and overshooting with any program like this. You try to shape the program quickly as best you can to direct it where you want to direct it. But you have to have to understand that you're not going to have 100% accuracy when you're trying to do things on the fly. Um, that's that's number one. Number two, uh, I, I think after, after the um, economy has improved, I think everybody needs to step back and once again ask the question, what is the nature of the financial system? What have we done well and what have we not done well? I think the, the performance of the banks over the last couple of months has suggested that the Dodd-Frank Act and the reforms that were made thereafter did indeed strengthen the banks. The banks have been a source of strength, not of vulnerability this time around. And I hope they remain that way, and that's a good thing. It's in shadow banking. It's in other parts of financial markets, asset managers, hedge funds, uh, the repo market. That's where we've seen some vulnerabilities. And that's where the Fed action uh, in an effort to stabilize the economy needs to be looked at after the fact, not to criticize the Fed for maybe acting to put a floor under the financial markets, but to ask the question, just as we did with the banks in 2009 and 10, what do we need to do now in other markets to make sure that financial instability doesn't grow outside the regulatory perimeter? Hey, Dan, always thoughtful. Always appreciate your time. We've got to get you back on soon. Former Fed governor there, Dan Tarullo. Well, you know, John, we like to do it here on television, on radio, and that is cross-asset data checks. But for so much of America, for so much of the world, it's still about the stock market. It can be that port, portico, whatever it is, a platform at the New York Stock Exchange, or it can be the seven-story video extravaganza of the NASDAQ going IPO and going public is a good and beautiful thing. Nelson Griggs joins us. He is the president of the NASDAQ. Nelson, let me ask the money question right now for New York Wall Street. How will this pandemic change your NASDAQ? Well, it's changed quite a bit. We went from having 4% of our population working from home to 98% in a matter of uh, a week. And that was pretty remarkable. And uh, I think we have seen the markets work very efficiently and effectively. There's certainly been an impact on, I think, your lead in there to the IPO market. So happy to discuss that. But uh, we've been work working pretty well. Well, now, so let's talk about physical trading floors. Just touch on that topic and we can move on pretty quickly. But do you think yeah. the pandemic has underlined that we don't need them anymore? 
Yeah, I think if you look at the equities that have a pretty simple price action uh, up or down, we have a long believe that the best outcome for investors is to do that in electronic format. I think these last two months, the data that we see now, how stocks open, the efficiently uh, trading throughout the day, and in particular the close, we've seen better performance in the electronic market. So I think we, we are of the strong belief that investors are best served with an open, transparent, and electronic marketplace, but that's, uh, that's our opinion. People like to come down to the trading floor for the big IPOs, the big song and yeah. dance, the dog and pony show. You've seen it a million times now, son. IPOs in a pipeline. Can you just give us some insight to what you're seeing just in terms of activity? Can we expect anything anytime soon? Yeah, great, great question. So we have performed at NASDAQ 15 IPOs uh, since the middle of March. And a lot of that has been in the healthcare space. Uh, I think the biggest challenge for an IPO is can they go out on do a roadshow and talk confidently about the upcoming quarters. Um, that's not as uh, important for a healthcare or biotech IPO. So we have seen those go out and do very well. Uh, we are starting to see other companies though. Uh, you, you saw uh, this morning Warner Music file for a very large IPO. They're going on the road today. And you will see more this week actually file uh, to start. So we are seeing uh, some non-healthcare, non-what we call SPAC IPOs uh, start to launch their roadshows. Many of them were very close to going in the March timeframe and then put their plans on hold. So these are deals that were in the works for a period of time. I will say though, we are starting to see new deals uh, pop up. And I think what we have here is we have a you know, November election, uh, but up from now until November, if the markets do hold, which, uh, you know, again, today we're seeing some pretty impressive performance, uh, there's a chance we'll have a healthy IPO market that's multi-sector. Nelson, who are the investors here, especially as we talk about an increase in retail investors coming into stocks right now? Yeah, you, you are seeing it be more broad-based. I think the initial rally, uh, we did not see a, a lot of long investors come into the marketplace, but I think as you have watched the indices continue to uh, go up, uh, you know, where the NASDAQ 100 is up almost 8% for the year. We have the NASDAQ composite up almost 3%. The biotech is up 13%. So we are starting to see some long investors come into the marketplace as they're seeing the ability to get uh, a bit more predictability in terms of what they're hearing companies say. So once we went through a, obviously a pretty challenging earnings quarter where a lot of uh, companies that pull guidance, we are now seeing them able to go out and have a bit more predictability in what they think may happen over the coming quarters and, and year. Nelson Griggs, one more question, if we could as well. One yeah. day you're going to get back to work, the pandemic is going to be over, and we're going to reinstitute IPOs. How are you going to compete with the New York Stock Exchange? What's the key distinction you have in 2021? Yeah, our, our key distinction, we, we obviously do very well. Last year, we won 78% of IPOs. We're on that same uh, track record this year. Um, I, I think our, our big story is life cycle uh, support. So we do a lot to help with companies, the right investors, uh, position their story. There's obviously, as you mentioned, a lot of different media and support around that. So we've been on quite a, quite a run the last handful of years in that 70% win rate. And it is a, a very holistic story we have that uh, resonates very well with companies. Now, so before we round things out, quite clearly, looking at the rhetoric coming out of Washington and the policy too, there's going to be far more scrutiny of foreign companies listing on US exchanges. What is the role of foreign governments in those companies? Are we going to have the same auditing standards that US companies have to abide by? All things that just make a whole lot of sense. What's the stance 
of the Nasdaq on that situation at the moment? Yeah, I, I think you hit on the one in the middle there, the auditing standards. Um, and, and we obviously would like the U.S. to continue to be the, 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 the global focal point for growth companies to come and list. That said, there does need to be uh, transparency um, in terms of the reporting. So we were happy the SEC has uh, gotten together a, a group, a roundtable for a discussion of all of the ecosystem on July 9th. I think that was a very prudent move as we are seeing a lot more as you said, rhetoric coming out of Washington, we need to be prepared as the ecosystem, meaning the exchanges, the banks, the auditors, as well as the SEC, to make sure there's enough investor protection to invest in all companies that come to the U.S. So we're, we're supportive of the path we're all taking. And now, so are you looking to tighten your own rules before the government does it for you? We consistently look at our rules and we, we have tightened the rules to some degree. We did last week. Um, it, it is a, it, it's a journey. You need to work again within the ecosystem. So those were done in, in concert with some feedback from other participants. Uh, but we're prepared to do when we have uh, discussions with, again, the, the, the broad-based ecosystem is real important here. because It's not just the exchanges. It's not just the, the bankers or the, uh, the accountants. It's really everybody coming together and saying what makes the most sense. But we, we certainly will do our, our role as a fiduciary uh, you know, exchange. We uh, have, have rules in place to think that are appropriate. Nelson, a conversation we've got to continue. Look forward to having you back soon. Nelson Griggs there of the NASDAQ, the president of the NASDAQ. The pandemic is changing. There's no question this weekend, the three-day weekend, we saw the, the, the color of the nation change, the tone of the nation change, and all the ebb and flow of this tragedy from that exceptional New York Times cover of a thousand names who have died in this pandemic to the celebrations that we're beginning to see as America re-engages. We need to get an update on the pandemic, and we do that at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, a Department of Medicine, and their Nisa Ernst. Here's Ms. Ernst. We have never seen anything like COVID-19. And so there are hospitals have never seen an impact like this. Frontline nurses are in a fairly solid position. It's the nursing piece of, uh, around the front line that is subject to review. And that's as in any financial market situation. This is similar to what the, I was in the hotel business. We saw this in 2001 with 9-11, where the volume dropped completely and different decisions had to be made. But I do think that nursing is a, in an excellent position to rebound in any way, because we have a lot of professional agility. Do, do nurses across the country feel like they've been taken care of, both from you know a physical but also mental point of view? I can speak for Johns Hopkins, and I know that we are reaching out to all of our employees and encouraging them to take advantage of the many support systems that we hear at have here at Johns Hopkins. And I do know that other institutions are doing that as well. And I think this is one of the first times that I've seen this big push to say to people, we don't know how we're supposed to feel. So we need to develop some different resiliency and emotional agility skills. I know we talk about blended roles. So nurses actually um, having slightly different roles or going and moving from one department to the next. How do you think COVID-19 will actually change the nursing world forever? I think the blended model is going to be here for quite a while. I know that we at Johns Hopkins are looking at that very seriously. 
that we're training a nurse who used to work in a general ward to elevate her skills to an IMC level, intermediate care, and the same with an intermediate care nurse to develop those skills that are needed at the ICU. I will tell you this was COVID was a big wake-up call about how limited we are in the valuable ICU nursing resource. What do we still not understand about the virus? I'm, very, I'm, I'm reading various reports that, for example, 30% of those who have recovered from coronavirus could have long-lasting effects on their lungs. How much do we know about the secondary effects of this, of this disease? Well, we're learning a little more every day, but you're absolutely right, Francine. The impact on the lungs, the impact on the long, long-term physical condition for patients is really our next step. One of our inpatient medicine units has converted into a, a mini rehab facility where we can start that rehabilitation for patients before they're even discharged from the hospital because we've recognized that this is a long, long recovery process for some patients. Lisa Ernst, Johns Hopkins University there with an update uh, as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.